This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. As we discussed last week, Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer really stirred up a hornet's nest with that speech he gave to the convention's executive committee. Not only did he call his conservative critics Pharisees, who are akin in some way apparently to terrorists, but he stated without revealing any evidence that there are closet racists and neo-Confederates in SBC churches. It was just outrageous and points out exactly why the Southern Baptist Convention needs new leadership. And coming up in June, that is going to happen when the Southern Baptist Convention gathers to elect a new president, among other things, at its annual meeting. And that new president may well be my next guest who is being nominated for that position. Randy Adams is a former pastor, now executive director, treasurer of the Northwest Baptist Convention. And he has rightly said that the Southern Baptist Convention is in crisis. And now he's calling for the walls to come down in the denomination, which he refers to as walls of secrecy, walls that enable corruption and prevent transparency, walls that conceal failure and walls that protect abusers and wrongdoers from accountability. So we are just really glad to have Randy here to explain more about his serious concerns with the state of the Southern Baptist Convention and the plans he has both for accountability and for its renewed mission with the Bible as the sole and final authority on all matters. Randy, so good to have you with us today. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Well, thank you, Janet. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. First of all, I I am curious for your reaction to what J.D. Greer had to say before the executive committee last week. A lot of conservatives are very upset. I know the Conservative Baptist Network called his remarks needlessly divisive. What was your reaction to that speech? Yes, I was actually sitting in the room listening to the speech live, and I had much the same reaction that they had. And any time you make an accusation like that, you ought to back it up with specifics, with actual evidence. And, you know, broad generalities indicting uh, a group of churches or denominate denomination of churches without specific evidence is just uncalled for and divisive. So, yes, I, I, I agreed with their consensus opinion on that. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things you've written about is, you know, here Greer was calling for unity. There was a lot of talk about gospel unity and that sort of thing. But you've said that calling for unity without rebuilding trust is manipulation. And I said, that's a perfect description of what I think that was. But for a lot of us who aren't Southern Baptists watching that speech, one of the questions I had watching it was, why do this at a time when the Southern Baptist Convention is just torn asunder in so many ways? Why stand up and talk about unity, but spend a lot of the speech kicking your critics without any evidence for what you're claiming. I don't even understand the motivation there. Well, I really don't either. In fact, I wrote those words before his speech um, 
because I've, I've noticed that a lot of our leaders are calling for unity. And it's, it's apparent that we are in crisis. And when you're in crisis and, and you're, you're seeing things splinter, you know, often then it's when leaders, those in power, call for unity. And, yeah. of course, what they really mean is follow me, you know, <laughs> right. follow my leadership. Mm-hmm. And it just struck me that if you're going to call for unity or plead for unity without rebuilding trust, I mean, unity requires truth and it requires trust. And without that, it is manipulation. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. trying to silence voices when you call for unity. Essentially, is what you're doing. Silence yeah. your critic. You're right about that. You were absolutely prophetic. <laughs> and I think you're right. We have heard <laughs> a lot of those calls for unity. Can you talk a little bit about the crisis in the SBC as you see it? Well, the, the thing that really motivated me to allow my name to be thrown in the hat is for the last decade, we have experienced the worst decade in our 175-year history in terms of advancing the mission of God. And that's really what my concern is. I'm a pastor. I'm an evangelist. I, I lead out in planting churches, and, and, and I've been involved in gospel work all over the world. So really, it's the mission of God and advancing that mission that most concerns me. And that's what Southern Baptists were founded to do, was to take the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to the nations and throughout our country. And we're not doing so well at that. In, in 2010, we made a choice to become more top-down, more centralized and hierarchical in terms of how we do our work in North America. And it's been a it's been a, a colossal failure. So, for example, our baptisms have decreased more than 100,000 per year. We are baptizing roughly 350,000 a year in all of our churches combined, and now we dropped to 235,000 as recently as as 2019. The five lowest years in baptisms in Southern Baptist churches uh, since 1947 have been our last five years. The same way with church plants, we're planting far fewer churches and spending much more money to do it. And our giving through the cooperative program, our cooperative mission giving, is way, way down from where we were even 10 years ago. And of course, we've had 10 years of economic growth up to the COVID crisis. And yet our giving through our mission uh, enterprise is down from where we were 10 years ago. So those were the things that really motivated me. And I felt I saw what some of the the reason for the decline is and what, what some of it is. And really, it's this centralization uh, approach, taking charge from a national headquarters and basically dictating to those on the field how the work ought to be done. Wow. How has that affected your convention in particular? Well, it's affected us greatly. It, it's affected all of us. Uh, so what's, what's happened is the North American Mission Board has reduced get, uh, reduced spending through state conventions and local associations hugely. So we've lost, oh, probably um, a million and a half dollars, something like that, in the last eight years mm. in giving. Now, the money is one thing, but what, what it really represents is New Testament missiology always puts the emphasis on the implementer. So the person on the field, and then the person closest to that person on the field. So we, we developed over 175 years a network of churches, 47,000 churches, and a network of associations. So that up until the last decade, every church, no matter how large or small, no matter where they were in the United States, 
they had a person that they could go to who sort of represented who Southern Baptists are. And that person was the local director of missions. And then beyond that, it would have been local state convention employees. Almost nobody knew who the national leaders are. At least you didn't have a personal relationship with them. That has been dismantled, that system of, of, relation, of relationships, especially outside the South. We no longer have uh, the state directors of missions like we once did and the local associational missionaries like we once did. So we sort of dismantled that that whole system, which means we have far fewer boots on the ground to serve our churches and to start churches. And so that really, and that's kind of getting in the weeds a little bit, but um, but that centralized approach, it, it'd sort of be like if Washington, D.C. dictated to all 50 states how to run their state. Ugh. And then not only the states, but the counties in those states. Uh, it just wouldn't work very well. We believe states ought to call the shots as much as they can. And I think that's the way it should be in the Southern Baptist Convention, that the national entity should resource the work of state conventions. But the decision making ought to be kept as close to the field as possible. Do you think decentralization, if you were elected president, would be a difficult process to implement? Or do you think that there is enough support within the convention and people would support that idea that you're proposing of making sure that those state conventions have more local control? I think there's a lot of, of uh, a belief that we need to go back more to local control. I think I think the majority would say that um, the vote was close in 2010 to centralize as it was, and I think had the vote been divided back then, that part of the uh, of the recommendation wouldn't have passed. So I do think we can we should do that, and we can do that, and I think we would have the votes to do that. And to give us an example, for example, I'm in Washington State, and our convention territory is Oregon, Washington, and North Idaho. Well, when people think of Washington, they think of Seattle, and you know Seattle definitely controls controls the politics in Washington state. But um, Spokane is not Seattle and Wenatchee is not Seattle. And so it's the people who live here who know best where God is at work and, um, you know, what's happening. And, 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 And for example, we have towns in Washington state strangely enough, that are more Christian than towns in Texas, you know, certain towns I believe in Texas that. or Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we've, we've, got, we've got one small town of 750 people in which the First Baptist Church has, four, uh, has 400 people on Sunday pre-COVID. Wow. So 400 out of seven. It, it's unbelievable. It's really remarkable. It is. Hang on just a moment. We're going to pause for a short break. Randy Adams with us talking about the SBC's next president. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw my blessings like that. 
Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. Randy Adams is my guest, pastor and executive director and treasurer of the Northwest Baptist Convention. And he is throwing his hat in the ring to become the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention when the annual meeting takes place in June. It's a very interesting situation, especially in light of the speech that was given last week by the current president, J.D. Greer, who really was very, very divisive. And there are some very big divides, as you know, Randy, in the Southern Baptist Convention. There are a lot of Christians who are concerned about the progressive dream about the promotion of critical race theory that culminated in the passage of Resolution 9 and all of the fallout from that. How do you even begin to go about potentially addressing the divide ideologically in the Southern Baptist Convention? And, and you also have, along with that, I should mention, a lot of people who are really upset with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and the leadership of Russell Moore. What, what are some of the proposals that you might have to deal with that? Well, essentially, I think we need greater transparency in finances and performance. Uh, We need accountability when our bylaws are violated and when uh, our guidelines are violated and when our money is misspent. Um, And we need to expand participation in the Southern Baptist Convention so that more of our churches can participate. So, for example, right now, uh, the annual budgets and the trustees and everyone's voted on at a national meeting. But a lot of our churches, half of our churches run 70 and below. And so so one thing I'm proposing is that we have off-site remote locations in which to participate in the annual meeting. Uh, a lot of the powers that be hate that idea because you can't control it as much. Right. But I think if we expand participation to our smaller churches and our churches more distant from the annual meeting location, that we'll get a better idea of what Southern Baptists really believe, and that will bring into line some of the uh, discordant and uh, left-leaning 
things that we've seen happen in recent years. Okay. So transparency, for example, I'll get in money. Um, if you look at our church planting budget, for example, last year we spent $69 million in church planting. That's the only number we received, $69 million. How that, how that number is broken down in terms of how it's actually applied, we don't know. We have very little transparency in finances. You may know that we had an entity leader of Lifeway Christian Resources who, when he left his position, he was given a million dollars going out the door by the trustee chairman. Yes and a vice president of Lifeway. No other trustee was even informed uh, that the trustee chairman gave him a million dollars going out the door. Now, that kind of, uh, I would say, malfeasance, evidently they've done an internal investigation in which they say there's been no illegality, but it's just not right. It doesn't pass a smell test. And so we need transparency and we need accountability for things like that that we just don't now have. And I think those two things and then expanding participation to more of our churches will help keep us clear of some of the leftward drift uh, because the average Southern Baptist person out there is not J.D. Greer, right. you know, right. nor is that average person some of the others that are calling the shots right now. They just don't have much of a voice. Um, and, you know, you got to take vacation. you got to spend a lot of money to travel from Washington or Maine or Texas even to go to Nashville, which is where our annual meeting is this year. Yes. Well, I think that's a great idea. I've heard a lot of people say they would really support the idea of having off-site locations so more Southern Baptists could participate in the annual meeting. It's to- It makes no sense in the age of Zoom why you couldn't do it. I think that's, that's a really, really good idea. What about things that have been launched? I'm thinking in particular of something like the Caring Well Initiative and this was supposed to be the big effort to deal with sexual abuse. And then people were commenting all over social media, hey, wait a minute, then you had J.D. Greer hiring this Brian Loritz and now there's going to be an investigation because of how he handled sex abuse and was this whole thing just a facade? How do you come down on that issue of dealing with abuse in the church and sexual abuse and and victims who are really feeling like the churches, some of them at least, who have been involved in some of this stuff, have betrayed them? Yeah, and there's reason for them to feel that way. The situation with Brian Loritz and J.D. is just baffling to me because J.D. sort of took the point, or it seemed he did, on trying to bring some correction to uh, churches that that had sexual abusers. And then in his own church, they attempted an internal investigation in which, that failed, and they admit that it was flawed. And after seven months, now they're having an external investigation. So I think we, one thing, if we've learned anything uh, in the last couple of years with sexual abuse and sexual scandal, it's that churches cannot investigate themselves. We need to have outside investigations when there is wrongdoing. The other thing with Southern Baptists, all of our churches are autonomous. And so requiring the reporting of a church um, is very difficult, especially if there's not laws broken. But I do think that one thing we can do is uh, establish a system in which not only Southern Baptist churches, but all churches can voluntarily submit information on, uh, on abusers. Yeah. And I'm thinking now, so, so for example, I had a situation on my own staff the first time this ever happened a few years ago in which I had a person who was committing acts of immorality. There was nothing illegal, but it was immoral. And so what I did is I informed every pastor in every church in our convention of what happened. We put it in, a, in our online publication and a print publica- publication because I don't want that guy going to another state and and you know getting on staff in a church without them having some 
opportunity to discover that through a Google search or something such as that. I, I wanted to expose as widely as possible, and I, I think we have to do that. I think the days in which pastors or staff make a mistake, you know, commit an act of immorality in one church and are allowed to secretly leave that church so as not to create scandal in that community, for example, and then they go and offend in another state or even another denomination, you know, sometimes, because we have guys who migrate between denominations, some of these abusers do. So I just think we've we've got to do better to establish a database of, of abusers. And then we have to establish a culture that outs them when it happens. Yes. You know, that doesn't yes. allow abuse to be kept secret and silent. I agree with that. And that's kind of a theme, it seems, with everything that you're aiming to do if you are elected president. You just want transparency. You want to deal with the corruption open, openly and honestly. And, and something else I wanted to ask you about, and I know we don't have a whole lot of time to get into all the details with the North American Mission Board. One of the things that came up recently, and I know you know about this, was the North American Mission Board came under fire for some of its church plants that were revealed to have had women pastors on staff, which is both unbiblical and also a violation of the stated beliefs of the SBC, the uh, Faith and Baptist Faith and Mission. What What is your reaction right. to that? Why in the How in the world are they getting away with this? The, the The North American Mission Board is planning churches with women pastors in violation of the stated beliefs, and it has to come to light through bloggers? I'm not really sure how that works. Well, that's a great question, Janet. Um, and that's why I appreciate people like you, because honestly, Baptist Press is the PR organization of Southern Baptists. Yes. We do not have a press at the national level. They're a marketing arm of SBC. They're PR. And so we need others to, to, to report on things like this. And how they get away with it, I really don't know. We found a church uh, just recently also that had a brewery. Uh, A church in California had their own brewery. Now, it was claimed that they're not receiving funding from NAM, and that's probably true because they're not a church plant. However, they do have houses that NAM purchased for them that the church planters they're training can live in. And uh, they do uh, training events at their church and whatnot. Well, when that was discovered just a few weeks ago, uh, NAM scrubbed their website, I understand, of, of any information about that church. But I just, it just blows my mind that things like this keep popping up, seemingly without accountability. Right. Well, and to weigh in quickly, too, another incident that came up in the last year or so, and there's been a lot of of upset about it, rightly so, was what happened at First Baptist Church of Naples, Florida, and how there was supposed to be this effort to elect an African-American pastor, and the congregation rejected him, not because of his skin color, but because they did not think that he met the qualifications that were listed for the senior pastor's position, which was true, is objectively true, but they were labeled as racist and people were thrown out. And I guess even some leadership in the SBC had tried to influence the hiring of this pastor. How would you clean that kind of situation up? Well, again, that's a local church. And so local churches are autonomous. They can do what they want. But the way it was reported, and and there was some involvement, again, by uh, denominational leaders. And I'm, I'm going on memory now. It's yeah. been far enough back. I don't remember all the details. I do know that a staff member with the North American Mission Board is their interim pastor. And there was some involvement with NAM in that church, but I don't remember the details. 
Um, I do recall, however, that the pastor that was recommended to them, the African-American gentleman, he was he actually had some social justice type views. Yes. That did not meet up with what the church, what many in the church believed. Yes. And that was the issue they had with him. It wasn't the fact of his skin color. It was it was his viewpoints. It was his political and theological viewpoints that caused them concern. Right. And so as the story was told, it was made to sound like they they were racist. Uh, from what I remember and recall, it wasn't a racial thing. It was what his actual views were on subjects that concerned them. That's right. That's right. And and yeah. and his qualifications. You're right about that. And I think, you know, the time has really come, Randy, I think, to have somebody come in and clean house. In, you know, not, to, not in a heavy-handed way, obviously, but to call for this kind of transparency, all because as Christians, it's about following the Word of God and living godly lives. And it seems like that's a lot of what is just driving you to take these positions as you seek the presidency. It is. I've said the time has come and we don't need a president who is a cheerleader for the SBC. We need a president who represents the churches of the SBC to our national entity and holds them accountable to do what we've asked them to do, to live by the governing documents, to work in, in cooperation with our churches and our, and our conventions. And so that's really what I think is needed now. And that's why I threw my hat in the ring or my hat will be thrown in the ring because I think we need a reformer and we need someone who will bring these kinds of changes. Well, very exciting. We'll be very, very interested to follow what happens from here. RandyAdams.org. You can read his great blog. Randy, thank you so much for being with us. God bless you. God bless you, Janet. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks again, Randy. Take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. I want to talk a little bit about where the Equality Act is headed. It was no surprise, obviously, late last week when the House passed this, although it was kind of interesting. Fewer Republicans voted in favor of it this time around as opposed to the last time the House passed it. I mean, we don't want any Republicans. We don't want anyone in the Congress passing this thing. It's a monstrosity. It's horrible. I don't have enough adjectives to adequately tell you how horrendous this piece of legislation is that will criminalize Christianity. Uh, I'll get into that in a moment. But maybe you had the opportunity, as I did, to hear what Representative Greg Stubbe of Florida had to say when he was addressing from the House floor this Equality Act legislation. And I really appreciated how bold he was in citing the Lord. But boy, did this thing go terribly wrong at the end when Representative Jerry Nadler weighed in. You got to hear this for yourself. Listen to cut one. It's not clothing or personal style that offends God, but rather the use of one's appearance to act out or take on a sexual identity different from the one biologically assigned by God at birth. In his wisdom, God intentionally made each individual uniquely either male or female. 
When men or women claim to be able to choose their own sexual identity, they are making a statement that God did not know what he was doing when he created them. I'm going to quote directly from Dr. Tony Evans' commentary Bible on this passage of Scripture. Men and women equally share in bearing the image of God, but he has designed them to be distinct from and complementary toward one another. The gender confusion that exists in our culture today is a clear rejection of God's good design. Whenever a nation's laws no longer reflect the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. Gentlemen will suspend. The House will be in order. Gentlemen may continue. I'm going to read that line again. Whenever a nation's laws no longer reflect the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. And I think we are seeing the consequences of rejecting God here in our country today. And this bill speaks directly against what is laid out in Scripture. Our government, through this bill, is going to redefine what a woman is and what a man is. It can be anyone who identifies in that gender. Mr. Stubbe, what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. Jerry Nadler, everybody. God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Yes, Representative Nadler, we noticed. That's the entire reason why somebody needed to stand up and say exactly what Greg Stubbe just said. The congressman is right. The fact that we are now to a place in this nation where we no longer can tell the difference between male and female, and you have people from Vox, like I mentioned on yesterday's program, saying that Trump claims that transgender males are bi- or transgender women are biological males. Claims? We've lost our minds. And it isn't just the fact that we have congressmen needing to say that we are in rebellion against a holy God. It's the fact that we have to grapple with this whole losing our minds thing. Because it's way beyond just being in rebellion. We've lost our minds. I can't think of any other comparison in the history of mankind where you have had seemingly intelligent adults speaking fluent English saying things that are so dumb and and asserting things that are so provably false and then trying to do cancel culture on people who will dare to speak the truth. I can't think of any comparison to where we are now in terms of this kind of rhetoric. Obergefell, I'm still I I still haven't recovered from the Obergefell decision. It because it is beyond just wrong, it is senseless. It is anti-biology. It is anti-reality. It is two fists in the air to the Lord, not just one. And I'll tell you what, what really needs to be read in the halls of Congress is Romans chapter one. And I'm going to start with verse 18. I never tire of reading this passage, by the way. So I hope you will listen to it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Let me pause for a moment. God made male and female. If you were to sit down at a dinner table tonight with 20 people you didn't know, you would be able unless things were really off the rails, to go around the table and say male, female, male, male, female, male, female. Why? Because it's clear and obvious, almost always, 
who's male and who's female, because that's the way God made them. And now we're in an age where sometimes you have to pause and say, not sure. Well, it looks kind of like a man. Oh, well, but the hair. Yeah, but it could be a woman who just had her hair. Yeah, but it, I don't know about the lipstick. Is that di- now we're getting confused because people are doing so many things surgically to themselves that sometimes you have to do a little bit more investigation. But you're without excuse. If you're looking at around at what has been made and you are suppressing God's truth and unrighteousness, you are without excuse going on. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Image. What is a transgender woman or a transgender man but an image? This is Gnosticism, folks. Make no mistake about it. The idea that the body isn't what counts. It's your spirit that counts. So anytime somebody talks about my truth, my identity, I'm on a higher plane. It isn't my body that is revealing to you which sex I am. It's my own inner sanctum that is revealed that inside, deep down in my sacredness, I am a woman. No, you're a dude. You're a man. What are you talking about? See, this is when you start worshiping an image. You've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Going on, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Boy, that takes on a new hue, doesn't it? Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's where we are. That's where we are. We're living out Romans 1. How in the world do you reverse this? I don't know. But for the grace of God, you can't. You just can't. And all you can do at a time like this is tell the truth and be insistent about telling the truth. Did you know I was reading this article here, How to Pass the Equality Act in a Tied Senate? And the good news, at least for now, is they don't have a chance of getting this through the Senate because they need 60 votes, which we were discussing last week. But this piece over at the Hill by Tyler Deaton, who is not necessarily a household name, but Tyler Deaton is senior advisor to American Unity Fund, a national conservative organization advocating for LGBTQ and religious freedom. Can't have both, Tyler. Tyler's whole thing is, well, maybe we need to do this freedom for all legislation. We need to have this kind of compromise where, yeah, we'll give reasonable religious freedom. He actually says the word reasonable, reasonably, you know, reasonable people and reasonable religious freedom. No, Tyler, we're not doing that. And by the way, you're not conservative. You're not conservative. Game over. 
we're not going down that road. We better not go down that road because all they will do is say, okay, we'll give you a little bit of religious freedom in exchange for everything we want for Big Gay. And then what do they do? They turn around and then they strip you of your religious freedom after they get their Equality Act passed. No way, no how. The time is now for the United States and the the really clear thinking Christian and and moral citizens of this country to say, no way is this legislation going to pass. No way do we want this law in this land. No way. And we're not compromising. The answer is no. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Jesus Christ. That's exactly why we're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends a Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, and God bless you for caring. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. All right, let's get back into it. This story really upset me. I don't know if you saw this on social media. These videos were making the rounds. What happened to that Jewish family on Frontier Airlines? Oh, my. Oh, it's unbelievable. And this is the power of the Internet. You can watch people's cell phone videos of what actually happened. You don't have to just rely on the news organizations to write it up in such a way that you will miss all the good parts. You can watch the videos for yourself. Here's what happened. You had a Hasidic Jewish family, and I guess there, there was a big group of them, but there was one particular Hasidic Jewish couple with a baby, and they got on a Frontier Airlines flight, and they were kicked off. 
And this whole thing was filmed. You can watch this online. I would play the audio, but there's just a lot of noise. It's not really, you can't really hear anything. They're in the back of the plane and all of a sudden they're turned around and you hear clapping and you hear laughing and they get off the plane and then people are yelling. There's all this chaos. And here's what happened. Multiple people on the record, and I'm going to play some of their comments for you, said that the Frontier Airlines staff on the airplane applauded and exchanged high fives, and one allegedly said a job well done to those Jews, that they were happy to kick the Jewish family off the airplane. Now, it's all being sorted out a little bit, what the issue was. Apparently, at least part of the issue had to do with the fact that their 18-month-old in the baby carrier was not wearing a mask, which makes me so angry, (laughs) makes me so angry even to think about that. First of all, the policy of Frontier Airlines says you don't have to wear a mask if you're under the age of two. Second of all, none of those people should be wearing masks, in my opinion, because they don't work anyway. So give it up. I'm tired of all these ridiculous rules that have nothing to do with science. If you don't feel comfortable flying on an airplane while we're in the waning days of the pandemic, then stay home. But your mask is not going to help. And if you're not sick, why are you having to wear a mask anyway? I know I've made these comments a million times, but it does apply in this particular case. I want you to hear, though, from some of these passengers who exited this flight and then commented on the fact that, hey, wait a minute, this couple, they were wearing masks. They were wearing masks. And why does this matter? Because Frontier Airlines put out a statement on the Internet. Here's what they said. They said members of a large group, including adults, refused to wear masks as Flight 2878 was preparing for departure from Miami. Repeated requests to comply with federal law necessitated their removal from the flight. The issue did not stem from a child under two. And then you had this group who wrote back to them. This is a Orthodox Jewish Public Affairs Council is the name of the group. And they said, eyewitnesses not part of the passenger group and who are also not part of the same ethnic group dispute your claim, Frontier Airlines. In addition, video indicates that the initial order to leave was only given to the couple, not to the larger group. Besides, none of this addresses the applause that you hear clapping and whooping when this Jewish couple is forced off the airplane with their little baby. And here's what some of the passengers had to say after it happened. This is cut two. And I saw them high-fying each other and high-fying and saying the job well done to those Jews. Say it again. What did they say? They high-fived each other and they said a job well done to those Jews. Okay, they were telling these, uh, they were telling them they don't have masks, a family of three, and I told them that was the first one in the back, and I saw them all coming on board with masks, and and um, they started to scream at me, I should sit down, and at the end, they all high-fived each other, and they said, I think they said, we did it. Of course, uh, we, I was asking Stuart this, and uh, she said, I said, what's going on? Can we know something about uh, the situation? Uh, she started to say, no, go sit down in your place and uh, we have to take it out the issue. And I saw that David, Mr. Uh, David, he said, right. They made a hi-fi and I saw that also, that they was making hi-fi, but that they achieved whatever they did to throwing them from the airplane. Absolutely disgusting. 
Disgusting that Frontier Airlines would tolerate that sort of thing. Disgusting that they put out this statement that isn't true before they even had time to do any investigation. And I don't know all the details, but these passengers were there and the video footage exists and you can watch it for yourself and you can see these people weren't causing any trouble and the parents were wearing a mask and the baby doesn't have to wear a mask because she's too young or he's too young to be required to wear a mask, even under the website outline that you can find on the Frontier Airlines site. So what in the world? And you do hear the whooping and you do hear the clapping. And I guess there will need to be a further investigation and others are calling for a further investigation. But I'm telling you folks, this ought to terrify you. Really, we talk about cancel culture all of the time. But when people are being pointed out and pointed to and, and marginalized in a way that at least looks on the surface like it was related to their religion, and especially if it's anti-Semitism, that is terrifying to me. Because the Holocaust was not that long ago, and I'm not saying that there's a Holocaust in the offing anytime soon, but it's very, very close to, you know, it, a lot of people were alive during the Holocaust who are still alive today and remember all of the horrors of that, that when you begin to target people because of their religion, things can go completely off the rails. And nobody is saying there's going to be a Holocaust. I'm not trying to make that point. What I'm trying to say is you nip it in the bud. When you start to see hatred toward religion, hatred toward people because of their religion, if in fact that was the case, you nip it in the bud and you have zero tolerance for it. And especially bothers me because they were Hasidic Jews, because I know exactly how the left was treating those people when they were trying to just gather in New York and what de Blasio did to those poor people. uh, We should be concerned really concerned. Here's another example of religious hatred. And this all ties together, by the way, with the Equality Act. It's just religious hatred. It really is. It's like, oh, well, it's all about ending discrimination against LGBTQ people. You guys have all the power in the world. Who are you kidding? You guys are the least discriminated against and the least targeted of anybody because you guys have the most political power. The left does absolutely everything that Big Gay wants it to do. We all know that. Nobody is losing their job. The only job I've ever seen anybody lose for being a homosexual or being in a so-called same-sex marriage was at Catholic schools and maybe a stray evangelical school here or there. That's it. Nobody is firing anybody for being gay. I They would be trumpeting this from the rooftops, trust me, if they had all kinds of evidence of this taking place. it's a It really is about a reversal of morality. And I think for a lot of these people, there's personal animus toward Christians. You made me feel bad. You, you are haters. You're homophobes. And you're getting in the way of what I want to do and, and making me feel bad. And, and you know, so we're going to have our day. And so... No, no religious freedom for you. And if if there weren't some twinge here of animus, they would never have stripped religious freedom out of the Equality Act in the first place. That should tell you everything you need to know. Here's an example of what's going on. This is from Christian News Network. Three Christians in New Jersey have now been charged with violating the state's anti-bias intimidation statute. Did you know they had such a thing in New Jersey? What was their crime, allegedly? It was specifically for shouting homophobic rhetoric directly in front of Allure Salon. This is based on the citing officer's wording after the trio preached to the salon owner and an employee who are both homosexuals. Combe Cephalino, Daniel Stephen Corney, and Lydia Ortiz were all charged under two different sections of the state's bias intimidation statute during an outreach outside of an abortion clinic in Englewood, New Jersey. And I guess the salon is pretty close by. The Allure Salon, it's a facility where late-term abortions occur. 
And in an expose published by Priests for Life a few years back, the facility was caught on tape explaining how they will murder healthy babies up until 24 weeks if it is something that you want, quote unquote. Christians, as well as others, have been gathering outside the facility for years to oppose abortion and to engage in other speech activities. And in January, these particular Christians had spread out on the sidewalks nearby to effectively communicate the word of God and the gospel to as many people as possible. And according to one of the officer's summons, the Christians targeted the owner who is homosexual, by preaching against homosexuality. On another citation, a salon employee was written as the quote-unquote target of homophobic rhetoric. Their attorney told Christian News Network that his clients were there to be a voice for the voiceless and to preach the word of God to all the people, not just the homosexuals. He explained that his clients delivered a message of love for their souls and that only by repentance and faith in Christ can men be saved from the wrath to come. And then he cited that their actions were legally protected First Amendment activity. According to this attorney, if they are convicted of this fourth degree charge, they can each be sentenced up to 18 months in prison. So what is it going to be? It's a crime to be a Christian and preach the gospel in New Jersey. Is that where this is headed? So we have Hasidic Jews being kicked off airplanes for reasons unrelated to masks. What were the reasons? Why would a flight attendants, you know, applaud and, and whoop when they leave the plane? That's just rude. Even if you kick somebody off for cause, why would you whoop and applaud? That's just disgusting. You shouldn't be happy that you kick anybody off your flight. That I don't know. Just the direction we're going, again, as I was saying earlier, we are really in a Romans 1 situation and only the Lord can turn it around. Please be in prayer for this nation. I mean, really, please pray and fast for this nation. I, I want nothing more than for the Lord to be honored once again in this nation. And he is kind and he is loving and he is holy and he is very, very willing to hear our prayers if we go to him and ask for his mercy. Let's all do that. We've got to leave it there. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today.